Let me read to you the words of an ancient prophet and then the words of an American poet. Here's the prophet. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Hey, guys, how you doing? Nice to have you. I was kind of hoping you'd show up today. The children's story is what your dad is going to tell you tonight. So here's the other line. Saint prophet, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So that's the ancient prophet. Let me read to you the American poet. You, you know her, Emily Dickinson. Her poem, Of God We Ask One Favor. Some of you specialize in literature. Maybe you've read this poem before. Of God we ask one favor that we may be forgiven for what he is presumed to know The crime from us is hidden, immured the whole of life within a magic prison. We reprimand the happiness that too competes with heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask one favor, that we may be forgiven and freed forever. Amen. Have you noticed that we have become rather adept at categorizing sin? Thanks to the student movement that has taken conversations generally not heard in polite social circles and moved them out onto the collective conversation table, we have been categorizing in our own minds. We're never politically correct. Of course, we would never do this publicly. We do it privately. I'm talking about uh, substance abuse. Student movement got us, got us there. I'm talking about addictions. We've been thinking about that for a few Sabbaths. I'm thinking about sexuality. It's reflected in the recent LGBT discussion or debate, depending on your perspective. Publicly, no categorization, but privately, we're doing it. In fact, the behavioral science department has wanted to make its point of what is sin or not sin. Not to be left out, the theological seminary wants to make its point about what is sin or not sin. But the truth is, we've all been making our own point. We have a category. We have a list. And the great, the great apostle and Christian, Paul, not to be left out, he says, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute, I, ha- I have a list as well, a rather inspired list of sin and sinners. Actually, it turns out they're all addictions. I want to go to his list because the deal about lists, as you know, they're always too short. We need to elongate the list that you're about to read. Let's add to it. We have the right to. Open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul writing to this fledgling infant church in the pagan citadel of that seaport town called Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, let me give you a list. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, verse 9. I'm in the New International Version. You follow along in whatever you have that has it on it or grab the pew Bible in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or Paul writes to us Christians, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? No, Paul, actually, we already know that. Thank you for the reminder, but we knew. No, he says, I'm not through. Do not be deceived. Now, here he goes with his list. Neither the sexually immoral. Oh, Great. You have to put that in right at the top of the list. Unless you're four years old, everybody here has become, has been sexually immoral at some time, I suppose. 
Well, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. There you go again, Paul. He's kind of trying to rub it in on the last Sabbath of this semester, aren't you? Idolaters. Anybody who's, who follows after something or someone that you consider greater than God. Bingo, I'm an idolater. So he says, listen, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, you know who those people are, fortunately you and me not included, nor men who have sex with men, well, we've heard about that a few times, nor thieves. You mean every time I steal a little bit of your reputation on Facebook by just peeling away that piece of gossip, I'm thieving? Yep, you're in. Nor thieves, nor the greedy. Oh, I've got to have more in my portfolio. I just keep amassing, amassing. Nor the greedy, nor drunkards. Oh, boy, here we go. Those are all the, dic- the addictions now. Drunkards, nor slanderers. Anything I've said against somebody? Yep, you're on the list. Nor swindlers. Whoa, please. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Can you believe that? Of all the gall on this last Sabbath to say, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But you know the problem with lists? They're always too short. Come on, this is too short. Let's elongate the list. Just to be safe, let's make sure it's long enough for us all. I'm going to go to that little classic called Steps to Christ. One page in Steps to Christ, one paragraph, one line. I want you to catch this. Put it on the screen for you, but first put the title slide because this, this involves your study guide. There's a little Last Sabbath of the Semester study guide tucked away in your worship bulletin. Grab it out. You'll have to fill it in. Those of you watching right now, we're glad to have you. you do, let me put it on the screen for you. There you see it, www, that's our website, .pmchurch.tv. You'll have the same study guide. You want this quote. This is the final piece, the bondage breaker, washed in the blood for the rest of your life. Let's go. This would be Steps to Christ. There you see it on the screen. I'm reading now. God does not regard all sins as of magnitude. There are degrees of guilt in his estimation as well as in that of man and woman. Come on, we all have our categories. High, low, high, low. He has them too, apparently. Keep reading. But however trifling this or that wrong act may seem in the eyes of men and women, no sin, whoops, no sin is small in the sight of God. Keep reading. Our judgment is partial. It's imperfect. But God estimates all things as they really are. Now, here we go. The blank. Fill it in. The drunkard. There you can put any addiction you want. You want to put pornographic addiction? Put it in there. The drunkard, the pornography addict, the drug addict, the substance abuse, the prescription medicine addict, the food addict. Put any addiction you want. You know the ones that we, we kind of look down our noses at? Not our own, of course, but the others. The drunkard is despised and is told that his sin will exclude him from heaven, while pride, selfishness, and covetousness. Wait a minute. Would you circle those three words just in case we forget to come back to them? Pride, selfishness, and covetousness. We've got we to make this list longer. It wasn't long enough in Paul's. We've got three more to add now. Pride, selfishness, and covetousness too often go unrebuked. But these, pride, selfishness, and covetousness, are sins that are especially Can you believe that? Especially offensive to God. For they are contrary to the benevolence of God's character, to that unselfish love which is the very atmosphere of the fallen universe. He who falls into some of the grosser sins, and you know what grosser sins are? You know what they are, don't you? They're the sins you don't have. Grosser sins are always the sins you don't have. So we all know that list. He who falls into some of the grosser sins may feel a sense of his shame and poverty and his need of the grace of Christ. But pride feels no need. And so it closes the heart against Christ and the infinite blessings he came to give, end quote. 
Isn't that something? I told you, Paul, your list is way too short. We want to add three biggies just to make sure we're all on the list. Scribble in your margin if you wish. Pride, selfishness, and covetousness. Wow. I guess nobody's left off the list. But guess what? That's the whole point. That's the whole point. The point of the gospel is to get us, the grand divine gospel, you know what its point is? To get us off that list. That's the whole point. Look at verse 11. So we just read 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Now here's verse 11. And isn't this stunning? And that is what some of you were. What's this that you're talking about, Paul? What I just, I just gave you a list. You were that. Some of you were that. Now we throw in pride, covetousness, and selfishness. Whoa, not, and that is what some of you were. That would actually be, and that is what all of you were. All of you have been a list of forbidden sin. And by the way, did you notice that it's were? That the tense is were? Do you know what were means? It means past. You were on that list. You were one of those. You were practicing that addiction. You were. But the good news about were is that it's past. The were comes to an end, and now you is. That's not good English, is it? What is it? Well, now you are. I just want to see if you're ready for graduation. That's all. You were. That's past tense. But now you are. That's Paul's point. What you were, you don't have to be now. Because past is past. Present is present. Oh, mercy. And that is what some of you were. Past tense. Something changed. Something got me off of that were to are or am or is. And what is it? Another past act. For the past tense, there is a past act that gets us out of the past tense into the present. And what's that past act? Right here, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with at a price, depending on your translation. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Isn't that amazing? Past tense also. You were bought at a price. Something has happened in the past that frees me from the past and moves me into the present so that I can say, I once was that, but I'm no longer that now. That's the gospel. So what happened in the past? Oh, come on. Nobody needs a primer on the gospel. Jot it down. Seven of these. Boom, 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 boom. Let me show you all these past tenses. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, write it down. You were bought with a price. Were. You were bought with a price. Keep your pen moving. Yeah, I got bought. How did I get bought? Acts 20, 28, which God bought with his own blood. Ooh, Calvary bought me. I was bought at the cross. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Past act moves me out of past tense. That's the good news. Oh, look at Hebrews chapter, this is number four, Hebrews 4, 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? Cleanse. I not only bought you, I'm going to wash you. You're going to be just, whoo, look at you. 
Number five, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, purifies us from sin. Number six, Zechariah 13, 1, on that day a fountain will be opened to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Cleansed, purified, past act. And finally, I love this, the apocalypse, chapter 7, Revelation 7, 14, those who are in heaven have washed their robes and made them white in the what? In the blood of the Lamb. We just sang this with our, with our singers. The blood, the blood. It's a big deal in the New Testament. You know why? Because the blood gets us out of the past and into the present. So that what I am now, I was not then. And what I was then, I am no longer now. No wonder, no wonder Paul can write with such unmitigated confidence. Go back and read the, let's just read the whole verse 11 now. And that, that list I just ran by you, Paul says, and that is what some of you were. But what happened? How'd you get off of that list? Oh, keep reading. But you were washed. Somebody washed you clean. You were washed and you were sanctified. That's just the technical language, which means you're set apart for God's exclusive friendship, God's exclusive use. You belong now to God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of the thief on the cross. Remember the thief on the cross? With the last ounce of strength that he has, he musters up that breath. He he chokes out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm talking about the thief on the cross beside Jesus on the cross. You remember him, don't you? Lord, remember me. And just in that split second, get this, the voice from the center cross responds, you will be with me. In paradise. Can you believe that, guys? Listen, listen, listen. With one desperate plea, you can be moved from the list of the damned. With one desperate plea, you can be transferred from the list of the damned to the list of the saved. One prayer, one plea. You'll be with me in paradise. That is what you were, thief. Thief on the cross, that is what you were. But that is not what you are. Calvary removes the name from the list of the damned and transfers it to the list of the saved. One prayer. You got an addiction? One prayer. One Savior. Wow. Oh, come on, Dwight. Is the news, is the news, come on. Is the news really that good? It's even better. I'm going to end with this. Uh, uh, Steps to Christ. Put it on the, on the screen. You'll have to fill this one in as well. I love this one. If you get, this is page 62, that little classic. If you give yourself to Christ and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, no matter the addiction that once held you in its iron grip, sinful as your life may have been for his sake, You are accounted righteous. Now, hold on. Christ's character stands in place of your character, and you are accepted before God just as if you... Come on, finish it for me. Just as if you had what? Not Not sinned. Write it in. Just as if you had not sinned. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel, the everlasting gospel. 
You get moved from the list of the damned to the list of the saved, from the list of the addicted to the list of the set free. I'm going to share a stunning testimony with you right now. I will prove. No, God will prove through this testimony you are about to hear. That's exactly what happens. A few weeks ago when, when we were setting up for this, uh, this little mini-series on addictions, Pastor Rodley, who, who uh, uh, works with our Facebook page, posted, the, posted this invitation. If you have a testimony of what Jesus has done in your life, victory over addiction, would you mind sharing it with us right here? Well, she did. And in a few moments, when we return to this table for the Lord's Supper, that final climax to this semester, she's going to stand up here with me. But I'm going to read her testimony right now. Beautifully written. I want you to listen. I want you to see how God works. This is exactly what He's promised to do for you. It doesn't matter your addiction. You won't have the same addiction, trust me. You won't have the same addiction, perhaps. Dear Pastor Nelson, my name is... And I'll introduce her a little later. My name is, and I'm an Andrew student. I'm writing to you because I saw a post on Facebook by the PMC page, church page that asked people to share their testimonies about addictions they have or have overcome through Jesus. I have never shared my testimony before. For the last year or so, the Holy Spirit has placed a burden on my heart to share my testimony with someone. When I saw the post on Facebook, I knew that God, that was God's way of saying, it's time already, so here goes. So here comes the testimony. High school was a hard time for me. It's a hard time for a lot of people, by the way. You know. High school was a hard time for me. It's a hard time for most people. During that time, my home life wasn't good. My parents were fighting all the time with each other. My two older brothers, my oldest brother verbally abused me and led me to believe I was worth nothing. He was an alcoholic and a drug addict. One night, the fighting got so bad, I brought my little sister to the neighbors. When I got back, I saw my mom driving down the driveway, and in that moment, moment, I thought, my mom has left me. Then I heard screaming. I looked around the fence, and I saw my dad up against our house. My brother was running at him with a hammer in his hand. I can see the image clearly in my mind now. My mom came back. My brother didn't hit my dad. My sister stopped crying, but I didn't recover. That was the first night I cut myself. I was so mortified by what I had done that I swore I would never do it again. Two months later, another fight between my dad and brother, brother broke out, and I got a razor blade. And after that second round of self-mutilation, I was hooked. The cutting went on for two years. I cut every day. I was addicted. Depression kicked in, and I began to hate myself. I blamed myself for all my family's issues. I told myself I was ugly, dumb, and incapable of any type of success. I hated myself so much, I wanted to die. Some of you know that as well. I had just about given up on God. I had prayed for my family for years, long, agonizing prayers, yet my family was still being torn apart. Then one night, now listen up, then one night, God answered. I had a pet fish. It was a betta fish, and I took a liking to him. I set up a very nicely decorated bowl on my dresser for him. One day I got home from a bad day at school and worked to find him dead. Now, come on, let's face it. Although he was my pet, he's just, he, he was just a fish. I was 17 and old enough to know that fish don't last long. And this guy was beyond dead. He was white and floating belly up on the top of the water. But it was more than a dead fish. 
My mom had driven away when I needed her most. My brother tried to seriously harm my dad. I was trapped in, an, trapped in an endless cycle of addiction. I told myself I was so worthless that I couldn't even keep a fish alive. I grabbed the fish bowl and I went into my bathroom and I dumped all the contents of the bowl, including the dead fish, into the toilet and I was about ready to flush. But something stopped me. Although I was chained down by addiction, it felt like my life was falling apart. Something inside of me was not dead. Something inside of me still wanted to fight. I need you to hear that. Something inside of you is not dead. Something inside of you wants to fight this. In hindsight, I conclude it was the Holy Spirit. I couldn't flush my fish. I was tired of all these bad things happening to me. Where was God? Why didn't he care? Why wasn't he helping me? So So I scooped the fish back into the bowl toilet water and all. I slammed it down onto my dresser and I began to pray for the first time in months. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I remember telling God I was sick of my life. I was tired of the fighting. I was tired of hiding my scars. I was sick sick of walking around acting like I was just fine. I was so weary and I wanted it to all be over. I wanted to die. Then I gave God an ultimatum. I told him that if he really cared about me and if he really thought I was worth saving, then he would bring my fish back to life by morning. If the fish were still dead in the morning, I would kill myself. That's the deal. I cried myself to sleep that night, not because I was scared to die, but because I was scared that I didn't want to live. Morning came. I opened my eyes, but I was afraid to roll over and see if God had listened. I lay there for several minutes wondering what I would see. When I finally had the courage to look, I closed my eyes and counted to three and then rolled over. It took me a moment to open my eyes. But when I did, I couldn't believe what I saw. Not only was my fish alive, that would have been a miracle enough, but it was beautiful. Before it was just different shades of blue, but now it was all the colors of the rainbow. I must have sat there for an hour just staring at the fish. I knew what God was telling me, that he loved me that he wanted to set me free, that he wanted me to see how beautiful I was. He wanted me to see that he could take me from the shades of depression and make me into a beautiful child of the king. In that moment, my chains were broken. I didn't need to fill the massive hole in my heart with cutting anymore. Just like Jesus had brought life back to the fish, he had put life back into me. He gave me victory over all my pain addictions and feelings of abandonment. And now this biology major turns into a little preacher. One last set of sentences. That was the day I fell deeply and irrevocably in love with my Savior, Jesus Christ. I have had my ups and downs since. I felt like I was slipping away from Jesus and needed a renewal, but never again was I trapped by the addiction of self-mutilation. There are still times when life gets hard and I feel something sharp, but I don't. In those moments, Jesus is right there. It reminds me of how precious I am to him. And then I'm filled with his love and grace. 
We don't have to be bound by addictions. We don't have to feel alone and abandoned. We have a bondage breaker. We have a Savior. We have Jesus. Amen. Yeah, put your hands together. Amen. That person sitting right here, when we do the Lord's Supper, we're going to have a little time for testimonies. And uh, I'll, I'll invite her to come up. And What's Jesus doing in your life now? And that was what some of you were. Past tense. But you no longer are. Because you've been bought with a price. And you have been washed for the rest of your life. You are clean. You are clean for the rest of your life. That is the Christ, the bondage breaker, we have come to celebrate today at the foot of his cross. Let us pray. Oh, God. Our hearts quicken just to hear the testimony. You know what? We, we, must be, we must be very special to you. You take an ultimatum. You respond. You give a rainbow-colored fish in exchange. You save a girl. You set her free. Father, for the boys and the girls and the men and the women that long to be just as much set free. Begin now with the washing clean. Wash us clean by the blood of the Savior and set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.